Today's episode is brought to you by phrasing. Listen, I get it. Plug-in is not exciting in the English language. It's cool in Japan, where if you say it straight up in English still, it's foreign and exotic. In native English and to a native English speaker, though, it sounds less like you're going into battle and more like you're setting up a lamp. Two very different moods. But choosing the words Jackin instead was a questionable idea. Yes, it sounds more dynamic, it has more to do with technology and computers, but now I really have to be careful not to screw up the phrase Jackin five different ways as I discuss 2001's Mega Man Battle Network on today's episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Garlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the hundred-plus games in between as I can. Today, we're jumping onto the brand-spanking-new Nintendo Game Boy Advance. Nintendo had been dealing with the Game Boy for a very long time, and yes, they'd put out the Game Boy Color, which did literally give it color, but generally was not a hardware improvement. The Game Boy Advance, on the other hand, was. The simplest way to describe it was that it took the jump from not even on par with the NES to being kind of a portable version of the SNES. Not exactly at that level, but very close, and a number of SNES games would get ported to the Game Boy Advance over its life, including Mega Man and Base, which unfortunately suffers a little bit on the Game Boy Advance because the screen resolution just isn't quite as big. The same thing that happened to the Game Gear Mega Man, where you can't quite see as much, but it's still there. Anyway, that's not this game, and we need to really focus on talking about this game, because Mega Man Battle Network is a big deal. Battle Network was something new, and sentence. When the Game Boy Advance was coming out, Capcom wanted in on the ground floor, but they wanted to do something new, and so instead of doing something in the original Mega Man timeline, Battle Network is its own separate timeline that is basically an alternate universe. What exactly changed to cause this alternate universe is something that we'll get into by the end of the episode when it comes up in the plot. But Battle Network isn't just an alternate universe in story, it is a very different imagination of Mega Man gameplay, in that this is no longer a platformer. For the most part, the Battle Network series actually plays more as a JRPG. It has an isometric view of the world. You are running around, talking to people, investigating environmental objects, and you're not fighting things in this exploration mode. We will get to the battle system very shortly. That's where this game really starts to stretch the JRPG definition and kind of defied genre at the time, and even now kind of defies genre. This game was a launch title for the Game Boy Advance in Japan. The English version, however, was a couple months delayed from being a launch title, but I'm still qualifying it as one, and so it can be a little bit rough around the edges. It's not pushing the system to its limits in any sort of way, but creativity does not necessarily require mastery of a system. To illustrate how different this world is, I'm just going to jump into the opening section of this game. Our story begins in ACDC Town, which is going to be the main setting for almost every game in the series. This is the home of our main character, Lan Hikari. No, not Mega Man Lan or anything, just Lan. A young human boy in fifth grade. 
Which sounds weird to point out that he's a human, but we are coming from a series where almost the entire cast was robots. And yes, Lan is in, like, local area network. It's a computer joke. Get ready for a lot of those. Lan is the most typical fifth-grade boy protagonist you can imagine. He's hot-headed, he's reckless, he's a little bit of an idiot, he sleeps in, like, all these traditional things. They even gave him, like, roller skates and a headband and all that jazz. He is the quintessential shonen protagonist, which is fitting given the series eventually got a multi-season anime adaptation. And in the most anime fashion imaginable, our protagonist is woken up by what sounds at first like a radio trying to wake him up. News about the weather and reports of a criminal syndicate called the World 3 being on the rise. And I'm going to note, for some people, they might be expecting me to refer to this group as the WWW, because that's literally how it is written in the games. I'm so used to, from the anime and all the other adaptations, saying it aloud as World 3. That's what I'm going with. Before we can go downstairs, though, and grab breakfast, we need to grab Lan's P.E.T. off of his desk, his pet. P.E.T. stands for Personal Terminal, what would almost be a modern smartphone as imagined 20 years ago. With one key difference, our smartphones don't have AIs in them. See, the big thing about this world is it doesn't have robots the same way that Mega Man traditionally did. Artificial intelligence has greatly increased. Along with it, cyberspace and the inside of computers and networks has advanced incredibly, such that the idea of cyberspace is quite literal. All of your appliances that are electronics have literal physical spaces inside of them for electronic beings to interact with. Representations of those locations where the programs that maybe handle your air conditioning are literally entities running around in that cyberspace doing their job. In order to interface with these devices, everybody has a personal terminal capable of jacking in via a cord to send their navi, their personal AI navigator, into the device. And that is this series' Mega Man as Lan's partner. This Mega Man is essentially classic Mega Man in many ways. He still has the iconic helmet and stuff. He still has the Buster Arm Cannon. He goes for a more sleeker, modern, like, bodysuited design, though. One thing that you're going to find throughout this whole series is that the Robot Masters from the original series reappear here, but reimagined in some way, from either, like, a sleeker, more modern vision to some radical redesigns. We'll get into what it means to toy around in cyberspace, but first, we need to go down, talk to our mother. If you think of, like, the sweet housewife archetype, that's literally Lan's mother. Then we go and we head to school, accompanied by Lan's friend and neighbor, Mile. She's also the mandatory, hey, the shonen protagonist has to have a, like, kind of will-they-won't-they childish friendship-slash-maybe-romantic, you know... Genre conventional but age-appropriate love interest story that's more of an informed attribute than them necessarily actually having any, like, compatible chemistry. So prepare yourself for six games worth of jokes about him being too dense to realize the affections. Her Navi is the reimagination for this series of roles, so you can tell she's going to be an important character. Or at least a recurring character. Speaking of recurring characters who maybe aren't really that important of characters, we also arrive at school and we meet two of our most important classmates. Dex, kind of the school's big rotund bully type, who sort of fancies himself as Lan's rival, whose partner is Gutsman, and Yai, 
an egotistical young girl who is, um, to be honest, her main purpose in the stories is whenever they want to set up a scenario that would require the group to, like, have money to travel somewhere, she's the one with the money. Whose Navi partner is, and I can't make this up, Glide from Mega Man Legends. Except he's got more of a butler motif going on, but we never actually see Glide fight in, like, any of the games ever, I think. This is why meeting Glide in The Misadventures of Tron Bon was completely whiplash to me. They're two completely different characters. This first day at school also gives us an opportunity to just talk to the other kids and learn a little bit about how this world works and, like, the importance of being able to operate your Navi, being able to send them into devices, because when our class starts, it is virus-busting class. And the idea is, is that in these cyberspaces, when there are problems in the programs, it's because of literal viruses running around in these programs. And so people have to be able to use their navvies to fight those viruses, and this becomes the combat engine of the game. And this is where we'll have our tutorial, and brace yourselves. I'm about to try to explain Mega Man Battle Network's crazy unique battle system through a purely audio medium. Oh boy. It's chess, but in real time. But also not chess, but also a deck-building card game. Let me back up and explain this. Close your eyes and picture in your head a rectangle. Make that rectangle out of two squares. And then make each of those squares... Like, draw a tic-tac-toe through them. Make them nine squares sitting next to nine squares. The ones on the left are blue, that is the player's side of the field. The nine on the right are red, and that is the enemy field. That's the battlefield that you use in Battle Network's battle system. Everything in the game, even though this game executes in real time, is tied into those squares. When you move Mega Man up a square, he literally just, like, flash steps from one square into the next, and he is locked into positions. Similarly, attacks are locked into those squares. If you or an enemy uses an attack that's a shockwave, it will literally travel square by square by square by square, dealing damage as it goes. This is the core idea of the Battle Network system, is that in real time, you are moving Mega Man around on his side of the field, enemies are moving on their side of the field, or maybe not moving, and firing different attacks in different styles of ways that you have to dodge while attacking back. This probably gives some tactical RPG vibes, but it's not a tactics game. It's not turn-based. This executes in real time, excluding for the parts where it sort of is turn-based in the custom screen. At the start of every battle, you draw five battle chips. What the hell's a battle chip? Well, the easiest way to think of it, outside of battle, you build yourself a folder, a deck of 30 different battle chips, 30 different cards. When you go into battle, you'll be offered a hand of five random ones. Then, while the action is paused at the custom screen, you can pick chips from this hand in order to bring into the action segment. 
battle will activate and you'll go into the real-time fighting, and Mega Man can use those chips that you've sent him once each. After a few seconds of this, a gauge at the top of the screen will fill up and you can reopen the custom screen with a new hand of chips. If you run out of chips early, you can also fire your buster. It's very weak early on in the game, but there are ways to upgrade it. But the majority of your damage, regardless, is going to come from these chips. But these chips don't just deal damage. They can impact the field by damaging or even removing tiles on the enemy field for a while so that grounded enemies can't pass over them and can't run away from your attacks. They can give you beneficial effects like defensive barriers. But that's the basic loop. Draw a hand of cards, pick which ones you're bringing into battle, fight in real time on a grid for a little bit, rinse and repeat until either you or all enemies are dead. That's the basic loop. It gets more complex thanks to a variety of factors. The biggest of which has to do with what folders you can build and the implications of what chips you choose to build out of the folder. Just like any card game, your folder has deck restrictions. It has to have exactly 30 chips, and you can only have 10 of any given chip in it, which is still pretty generous. In addition, there are certain chips you can get later into the game, what are called Navi chips. Literal chips for the boss characters in this game, plus Roll, you don't ever fight her, but you can get chips for her. These chips allow you to summon in the Navi to do an attack for you while time is frozen, but you can only have five total Navi chips in your folder out of 30 total chips. However, building a powerful folder is not simply slapping in the 30 strongest chips you have. Because every chip also has a chip code attached. A letter from A through Z. When you get your hand of chips on the custom screen, there are limits to how you can select which chips actually go to Mega Man. Your chips must either be the same chip, such as three cannons, or must all share a letter code. For instance, a sword, wide sword, or long sword S could all be selected together, even though they're different chips. So there ends up being a ton of decision-making in the folder building in this game of do I value just bringing the most powerful chips I have, even though they might not necessarily allow me to actually play more than one or maybe rarely two of them at a time? Or do I pick a limited number of codes that maybe have weaker chips, but have a high chance of letting me play three or four of them in a turn? Of course, as you might expect from the fact that you can get to ten copies of a given chip, the ideal folders in this game tend to be made of ten copies of three chips that all share the same code, but that's the ideal at super endgame when you've got a ton of time to farm for these things. Realistically, as you play through the game, you're going to have to make sacrifices and make decisions about how you want to play. Do I spend time farming random encounters with enemies that drop chips that I like in order to get additional copies of those chips in order to throw into my folder? And do I adjust my folder when I enter a new area? For instance, if I'm heading into an area that's primarily water elemental viruses, because there is an elemental rock, paper, scissors, fire beats wood, beats electric, beats water, beats fire. If I'm heading into an area with water-type viruses, do I disrupt my current folder by including a lot of electric-type chips, even if they might not match the codes? Do I try to struggle through a boss with my current folder, or do I adjust it to deal with the fact that this boss hides out in the back row and I'm using mostly sword chips, which do not have the ability to hit 
things that are in the back row. They are a close-range attack, and I can't reach. That is intensely technical. There is tons of decisions to be had in this constant just iteration on powering yourself up in your deck building. And then there's the executional aspect of it. Everything's running in real time. You need to learn what kind of attacks your enemies can actually do and how they use them. Yes, you do recover to full HP between every battle, in this game at least, but also enemies are powerful and they will kill you in three or four attacks if you're not careful most of the time. The Battle Network combat engine is wild to describe and wilder to play. The game design of this game became an absolute phenomenon on the Game Boy Advance because I haven't even gotten into stuff like program advances, where if you manage to draw into a set of chips together and select from them in a specific order, you may transform that series of chips in the actual battleground into a much more powerful attack. There's just so many options and strategies available. And this is just the first game in the series. It's only going to get crazier as we get going. And if I go on detailing everything about all the different types of chips and everything, we will be here all day. I think the biggest other things to mention have to do with how you power Mega Man up and the systems related to that. You can get additional HP by finding or buying HP memories out in the world, sometimes just by checking the right corners or sometimes from shops. There's a limited number of them in the game in fixed positions. You can also get elemental armors for Mega Man in this game, which are purchased and basically let him take half damage from certain elements while making him weak to other ones. And then finally, the battle reward system in this game itself is interesting. When you defeat enemies, the game assigns you a rank based on your performance. How long did it take you? How much damage did you take? Etc. etc. The higher this rank, the more likely you are to receive a new chip instead of just some money. Higher rankings provide rarer chips or chips in more generally valuable codes. There is 175 different chips in this game. That's the smallest library in any of the Battle Network games. And it is worth noting, yes, most chips actually come in three versions, a weak, a medium, and an endgame strong version of the chip. So less than 175 different attacks by a significant margin, but that's still a ridiculous number. But if I even want to start talking about what the hell is going on in the Battle Network universe, I need to stop talking about the gameplay. I need to trust that you understand it, and we need to go zoom through the plot because we only touched on, like, the first five minutes of the game. And this is an RPG. Hell, we're not even done the tutorial segment. We have to go home and plug into the internet, and we get access to the internet, which sucks in this game. It is... Essentially, we can send our Navi Mega Man into different things, and it'll either be, like, stages, which we'll get to in a bit, smaller computers that are very easy to navigate, or we're sending him into the internet, which is an absolute mess of, like, overlapping and winding paths and very, very little things that actually assist in navigating it. Fortunately, we don't actually have to spend much time in this game on the internet, which is really good because I absolutely hate navigating Battle Network 1's internet. It's just a disaster. During this tutorial, we do even have the opportunity to take on our first optional boss fight, which is Gutsman, because net battling is just a thing people sometimes do. Technically, it's occasionally mentioned that people aren't supposed to be doing this. Literally, nobody in universe actually gives a crap. After all, even if your Navi gets damaged or deleted, you can just restore a backup of them. Except for Mega Man, 
who triggers the game over if he gets deleted, but we'll come back to that. Gutsman is a really simple tutorial boss. He teleports around randomly, he has really slow shockwaves, he can occasionally crack some of your panels, which means that once you move onto them and move off, they will disappear for a little while and you can't walk on empty panels. But because he's very slow, he is a very easy target, he doesn't have a whole lot of HP, he also doesn't give us anything for beating him at this point in the game. Every boss in this game has the story version, or the initial version that you fight, and then later on there's some way to do a refight with harder versions of the boss, either as, like, random encounters that you will find in specific areas of the internet, their data ghosts, ooh, or just challenging the operator again. And winning these rematches fast enough is how you earn the various navy chips. So anyway, we get home and we find out our oven is on fire. Okay, so one of the things about the Battle Network universe is that anything that can go wrong will, because somebody hacks into it. And in this case, a World 3 operator posing as a fire repairman has been going around throwing viruses into random people's ovens, and is also apparently searching for some super fire elemental program that apparently was in our oven for no apparent reason, but that's beside the point. In order to deal with this problem, we have to literally jack into an oven that's on fire and send Mega Man in. This is our first stage, which is an area that has unique visuals and usually, like, unique field mechanics to it. For example, here, we get an ice program that allows us to cool off the raging flames, but you can only extinguish a certain number of them before we have to go back to the NPC to refresh the program, and in that time, the fires would reset. So, essentially, it's a small puzzle. It's extremely easy, though. This first stage is actually super generous, and at the end of it, we have our first mandatory boss fight with Fireman. You're gonna notice, yeah, we have a bit of a theme of using the original six Mega Man 1 Robot Masters here. And Fireman, honestly, is almost the exact same as Gutsman. Random teleporting, slow, easily telegraphed forward attacks. They both serve as, like, a template of the most basic possible Battle Network boss. By the end of this game, we'll be seeing much more creativity. Fireman's operator mocks us a bit, because technically his plan succeeded and he got whatever mystery program was in our oven. Threatens us with saying that soon the World 3 will start war and everybody's going to die, because the group is extremely transparent about their master plan, and apparently it's to start a gigantic war and kill everybody. We don't know exactly how they plan to do that, but that is apparently their long-term goal. And we're just like, whatever, dude, and we go to sleep and head to Chapter 2. Pretty much every chapter in these games ends on Lan going to sleep. In fact, they aren't, like, named chapters. I'm just using that as the distinction. Chapter 2 slash day 2. Everything is kind of normal. Lan heads towards school, and it turns out, like, oh, hey, there's a new assistant teacher who is a little bit of a nerd and a geek and a rare battle chip collector and naturally is actually a World 3 operative there to install a brainwashing program in the school. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> when I say anything that goes wrong in this series can, I mean it. This isn't even the only time somebody tries to do this at this specific school. 
This series is really anime, okay? Long story short, we have to plug into the school's network, and this is our second stage. This one is kind of interesting in that it's a direct parallel to the school itself, and every once in a while, Mega Man will be like, hey, this gate needs something in the school interacted with, or needs a passcode that's related to something in the school, and you'll have to jump back to LAN and investigate the school in order to get the code. At the end of this stage, we fight the strange new teacher, Higsby's Navi, Number Man, who is our first boss who is a back row boss, in that he hides in the back, and that does mean that chips like swords and punches and hammers can't reach him without some sort of assistance from other chips. Number Man just hides out in a completely static location, which does make him easy to damage, but his main form of attack involves throwing out obstacles that must be destroyed before they deal unavoidable damage, things like time bomb or exploding dice. If you haven't found any power-up items from Mega Man's Buster, this can actually be a nasty fight. If you've found even one, it's probably not going to be that bad. Afterwards, we find out that Higsby's kind of just a nerd who has promised a bunch of our battleships for working for World 3, and Lan literally just kind of bullies him into crying and giving up his ways. I'm not making that up. At the end of this day, we find out that the local underground metro line has finally reopened after being closed for whatever reason, and Lan's ready to go visit his father, who is apparently a scientist who works at government laboratories. Computer science laboratories, to be clear. Apparently, immediately after opening up, there was a landslide, not in real life, but in cyberspace, and that's messing with the train, so we do have to go onto the internet and travel to essentially the equivalent location on the internet in order to fight Stone Man, who, like Number Man, is static, he hides in the back, and most of his attacks just involve stomping his arms and causing rocks to fall, and you just have to like, pay attention to the shadows of the rocks and react before they fall on you. It's completely random, but he is just a big target again. Once he's dealt with, somehow this fixes the quote-unquote landslide on the internet of the metro line so that the train actually runs, and now we can head to the government complex whenever we want. Outside, we have another boss that we can fight as just a completely optional fight. Well, sort of optional. At some point in the future in the game, I think you do actually need to defeat this operator and her navy woodman in order to get a key item that lets us progress deeper into the internet, but you don't have to immediately, which is good because this is like the first of two difficulty jumps in this game, is getting to the government complex. Woodman's got more HP and more damage than previous bosses, and while he is big and slow and his movement is very obvious, he is pretty much random and relies on you responding to the dangerous flashes of the panels on your side of the field and getting off them correctly. Anyway, we head to Dad's laboratory, and it turns out that he's not available at the moment. Though we can explore his office anyway, we learn a little bit about how he's apparently just an absolute programming genius. He's been developing a new type of Navi that uses something implied to be human, but the person who tells us this doesn't want to really say anything more than that. And interestingly, on Dad's desk is a picture of what is just described as a father, a mother, and their two sons. Which is really weird that Dr. Hikari has a portrait of a completely different family, because obviously it can't be Lan's, because Lan's an only child. Also, it would imply that Dr. Hikari loves his family when, I mean, okay, to be fair, Dr. Hikari is a loving father. He's just an extremely absent father. We're not going to meet him until, like, 
75% of the way through the game, even though we were just in his office. The game will keep coming up with excuses for why he's not there or is only there, like, momentarily. Anyway, that disappointment aside, we head home and we sleep and life progresses for a few days until we wake up one day and the water's not on. Nobody can get water anywhere in town. We go to school and even the school's fountain is dried up. Apparently class is cancelled, so we go home and we pass by a car, which is making muffled kidnapped child noises, but we just kind of pass by it and don't do anything about it. Especially because much more interesting right next to it is a new shop that is opened, courtesy of Higsby, the assistant teacher from before. Higsby running a chip shop is like a standard feature of these games. His chip shop also always features chip traders. You might remember that I said that you can only put 10 of a given chip into your folder in this game. If you get more copies, you could throw extra copies of chips into the chip traders, and they will save the game then spit out a completely random chip in return. Sometimes this can help you get chips that you don't have in your collection yet. Sometimes it ends up just being duplicates. But as long as you are giving up chips that are already in excess of anything you would ever theoretically use, then you're not really losing anything. Anyway, we head back to the government complex because that doesn't just have Dad's science lab, it also has the town's waterworks, where obviously something's going on. And there we meet, actually, one of the most important recurring characters in the series, Chad Blaze. Not to be misspoken as Chad Blaze, although he's kind of a Chad. He's also a complete little punk. He's got this black and white kind of bowl-cutty hairdo and a serious attitude problem, and he is going to be our rival throughout the whole series because, again, this is a shonen anime in game form. We need to have a rival character that will even eventually have, like, oddly homo-romantic tension with sometimes. Though that doesn't really happen in this game, but there's a bit in the next game that... Anyway, that's later. He's also apparently what's referred to as an official, as in an official net battler, as in it's literally his job to go around and stop cyber problems. You know, like the World 3's hacking attempts, and so it makes some sense that he'd be here at the Waterworks. In order to actually get into the Waterworks, of course, we need a proper ID for the government complex, so we literally go and Lan just takes a pair of scissors to his dad's lab coat up in his office and steals his ID badge? That, that can't be good. We do some nosing around, and we decide to hide out overnight and investigate properly. Surprise, yeah, it's an actually bigger problem. We jack into the waterworks system, and this stage kind of sucks. There's two reasons it kind of sucks. The first is just navigating it can be a bit painful. It's basically an ice physics dungeon. Once you start moving onto certain sections, Mega Man will automatically traverse all the way to the end of the ice. He can fall off cliffs while doing this and land on other platforms and make you take a long way back up. You'll have to turn on and off water faucets in order to clear different paths. We meet a couple suspicious navvies as we go through this section, one of whom is this obviously important clown-looking navvy. I'm going to throw it out there right 
now. Rule of thumb for the Battle Network series, if anything has a unique sprite or, like, facial mugshot, there is a reason that they have a unique mugshot, and it's almost certainly because they're an important character. 90% of the time, a boss. We also get to meet Chod's NetNavi, Proto-Man, which, yeah, now you know he's important when his partner is Proto-Man. Proto-Man even looks like his Mega Man self, to be really clear. Like, Rool got a bit of a reimagination. She's much more, like, almost Pink Ranger style. Proto-Man pretty much looks like Proto-Man, except he prefers to use a sword over a buster, and also has, like, long, flowing Zero-style hair, except it's white. Anyway, we get to the end of the Waterworks computer. We fight a pretty easy just set of viruses that have infected it. We unfreeze the system, and everything's cool, and we go back to town and oh. It turns out, actually, the problem was not the water distribution system, it was the filtration system. Now everybody in town is getting sick from drinking unfiltered water. Ew. And so we go back and we do the Waterworks dungeon again. Though this time, we do actually investigate the car with the muffled child inside and end up releasing the son of the Waterworks director, who it turns out, long story short, his son's been used as a hostage to get Dr. Freud to mess with the Waterworks. Before we can tell him, hey, your son's safe, we do have to fight him and Iceman, who is actually a little bit tricky. He's very mobile, and he likes to create ice blocks that act as barriers against many of your attacks, and then either lob his own attacks over the ice blocks at you, or kill kick them into you. So once again, like, a different set of chips from normal can really help out here, especially if you happen to have bought any Elex swords from Higsby's when it opened, where one of them could eat half his HP if you can manage to land it. In the resolution of this scenario, we find out, like, Dr. Freud was kind of just a distraction. Actually, the World 3 Navi was Color Man, the creepy clown-looking dude who was not Clown Man, surprise, but Color Man steals the Aqua program from the Waterworks because they're collecting elemental programs as before. Proto Man was actually trying to take him down, but Color Man escapes, and we get kind of a victorious cutscene after we go to bed that night, where we finally get to see our villain, this world's Dr. Wily, who's being attended by the World 3 and is basically gloating it up. Apparently, he's got the plan to create some super virus from these elemental programs called the Life Virus, but all of his flunkies are like, hey, this Lan, Hikari, and Mega Man keep getting in our way. Dr. Wily seems to know who we are, maybe in some way, but is mostly like, I don't care, just go do your damn jobs. I have a world to end. That brings us to Chapter 4. Chapter 4's setup is that we go on a shopping trip with Mail to a metropolitan area nearby called Dentown, looking for a birthday gift for Yai. We can fight Skullman here as a optional, again, with, like, quotation marks around it, because we probably want the key item this boss gives us later, at least. Skullman is fairly simple. His attacks are very slow and lingering, but that's also the dangerous part of them, because his attacks can potentially back you into a corner, and you have to be thinking a little bit ahead in dodging his attacks. Eventually, we're waiting for Mile at a bus stop in downtown Dentown, say that ten times fast, when the traffic lights start to go wild and, quite literally, cars start crashing in front of us. Now, it looks utterly ridiculous because they literally blink out of existence with, like, a couple tires flying off, and, like, there's an explosion graphic, but then they just vanish completely, and this just keeps playing on repeat, and first off, the death toll must be enormous. This is a serious emergency. Second off, it's represented the absolutely goofiest possible visual way, which is, like, a theme of the Battle Network series that, like, some of the things that happen in it should theoretically have, like, horrifying consequences, but we're kind of seeing 
seeing the world through the lens of a ten-year-old? Anyway, the idea is, is that this is a hostage situation. Color Man's operator is just like, hey, if you come pay a ton of money to the World 3, we'll give you the antivirus for your car so it'll, like, not crash on you. And, oh, also, naturally, she's put a bomb on the bus that Mile and Roller on specifically to mess with us, and so we have to go fix all the traffic lights in town in order to try to stop the bus and get Mile off of it before it blows up. And that leads us to our next stage... This one has an interesting puzzle where whenever you pass through certain markers on the map, whether the blue paths or the red paths are lit up will swap, only the paths that are actually lit up can be walked on. It starts very, very linear, but by like the third one onwards, they can definitely trip you up a little. Because you do actually have to pass through them in order to have them change the color. You can't just, like, easily step into one and back out where you were and have it change color. That won't work. In the end, we have to plug into the bus directly in order to try to disarm the bomb. Where Color Man is being really creepy to roll. There's some bad overtones, but I think that's the point. There's a couple of navvies in this series that just give off really creepy vibes. Um, Color Man's is not because he's themed like a clown. That's actually the least of his problems. He's just a pervert. He's also a decently tough boss. He's another one of those bosses that hides in the back, but he's mobile in the back row, and he actually has two different, like, puppets that move around in the rows in front of him. This makes it extremely difficult to approach him with sword-based chips, and also any sort of projectile chips. The only things that have an easy time hitting him are navy chips and lobbed chips, like throwing bombs and stuff, which aren't necessarily the greatest chips in the game most of the time. They're alright, but they're not the best that you'd have access to, so it's very possible you will end up actually having to adjust your folder in order to defeat Color Man. Even if his attacks are straightforward, the formation of his fight is difficult. Our reward for saving Mile is some childhood flirting that Man is just too dense to understand, and everybody just kind of laughs off the fact that probably tons of people just died in traffic accidents, and we go home and sleep it off. In Chapter 5, Dad's apparently having a work party at the government complex, which means Lan and his mother are invited to actually go see their father for once. When we head to the government complex, we have the opportunity to finally fight our last optional boss of the game, Sharkman, who is probably one of the most complex bosses in this game. He appears as three different moving shark fins on his side of the field, each of which can dash at you if they end up in the same line as you. Only one of them is actually vulnerable, and after attacking it a couple times just with regular buster shots or whatever, Sharkman will pop up and be briefly vulnerable, then he'll dive down and his position will randomize again. It can be really easy in this fight to tunnel vision on trying to find the correct Sharkman and fail to notice the attacks coming your way and get yourself hit. 
Plus, until we're done the next stage, you probably don't have a whole lot of electric-type chips to take advantage of his weakness either, so there's that. Anyway, underneath the government complex is apparently a very fancy underground restaurant. Apparently underneath that is the city's power plant, which, you know, obviously that's not going to be important. Chod is mysteriously here, and he calls this a, um, I think it was a bratty brat who brats brattily or something like that? I'm exaggerating a little bit, but he calls you a brat like three times in four sentences or something, and him being here obviously means something's up. We also get to meet our dad, finally, Yuichiro Hikari, or at least we get to meet him for like five minutes before... He gets paged to come away to his job. So, so much for having a party and dinner with Dad, I guess. Immediately afterwards, everything goes to hell when the party speaker, the eccentric Count Zap, who is quite the character in the anime, shows up and basically announces he's taken over the city's power generator and the room goes completely dark. And with everybody trapped down here because the only access is an elevator, everybody starts panicking about, like, running out of air, and Land decides, like, hey, the power plant's below us, right? And jumps in a goddamn garbage chute, which sounds incredibly dangerous, and we plug into the power plant for Elecman stage. Because the power is off, technically this stage shouldn't exist, but it does because the narrative insists that we have to be able to fix our problems by sending Mega Man at them. So they compensate this with one of the three different gimmicks. This is the least painful gimmick of this stage, is that you're on a timer throughout the entire area. Once that timer is up, Mega Man no longer naturally recovers because he's having to use the battery power of Land's pet in order to power his navigation of the system. It is very possible to finish this entire area with still like 30-40% to 40 of the timer left, but it's not necessarily trivial, and if you waste a lot of time getting turned around and stuff, it could start to suck, and then recovery chips are going to matter a lot. The reason you might get turned around a whole lot is because this stage's second gimmick is invisible paths. You realize they're there extremely early when there's, like, nowhere to go off the starting platform, but man... And it's not like it's linear paths either. Sometimes these invisible paths actually form loops. So that sucks too. And it gets worse because there's the dumb battery puzzle. You'll get sets of batteries from programs in here that you need to slot into like, a grid on the floor and turn on a power switch, and hopefully you put the batteries in the correct position. You get the hint that batteries will never be adjacent to each other in the correct positions, but it's a whole lot of trial and error, and if you error enough times, you have to go all the way back to the NPC who gave you the batteries. Also, this dungeon is, in general, fairly tough, too. The enemies are starting to have, like, a couple hundred HP. If you were trying to do this with just your base folder, the game's going to get extremely difficult at this point, so you have to have gone out of your way to upgrade. At the very end of this ordeal, we do face Elec Man. We can't immediately kill him at first, though, as somewhere in the power plant is still power that's transferring to him, and he's made out of literal electricity, you know, theoretically, like every other Navi. Um, God, I should stop trying to think too hard about this series and apply too much logic. Long story short, Lan almost electrocutes himself pulling a switch in order to completely shut down the power plant and make it so we can destroy Elec Man and then turn the power back on. Elec Man is actually fairly simple. Unlike the last few bosses, there's no gimmick where he's hiding behind things. He only attacks every so often, and usually it's just move out of the way, or like, 
destroy the coils that he puts down, which can be done pretty easily with a couple buster shots if you've upgraded it. Elec Man's actually kind of a joke, all things considered. Less a joke is what happens immediately after we defeat him, where we find out that Elec Man stole the Elec program, Chad was here, and intended to capture Elec Man rather than delete him, because the idea was to interrogate the location of the World 3's base out of him. This was a deliberate sting setup, and we kind of ruined it, and so Proto Man actually fights us. And Proto Man's deal is that, barring a handful of chips which can kind of trick him, like the instant summons of navvies for attacks, Proto Man will block almost every attack you throw at him. What you actually have to do is wait for him to teleport in front of you in order to do some sort of sword attack, and then slap him in the face. Trying just to randomly fire at Proto Man will not work, but as long as you are patient and look for the opportunities, he's not that bad. The only real difficult part of this is that it is a back-to-back -back boss fight, you don't get to save in between, and you might not be running on full HP. Anyway, it turns out that the Electric Program was the last program the World 3 needed to finish their grand plan. I don't know where the hell they got the Wood Program from, it's never mentioned. It's kind of like that one Chaos Emerald in Sonic 06 that just suddenly exists in the plot. It makes me wonder if there wasn't like a scenario that got cut out partway through development or something that would have been like a Wood Elemental Area. But there isn't like any known cut content or anything that would really match that, so who knows really. In the last chapter of the game, we're we're finally going to take the fight to the World 3, which begins by trying to find the location of their server via the Undernet. The Undernet is the deepest part of the internet, and in order to get into it, we have to hunt down some former World 3 operatives around town and basically get their keys to the Undernet. This is a location that recurs throughout the series. In Battle Network 1, it's essentially the latter two-thirds of the total number of internet areas. The basic, actual, like, standard internet is four areas that are very, very large. The Undernet areas are technically more straightforward, but there's a grand total of 12 of these damn things. You you only have to touch like three of them in order to find the boss for this part, Bomb Man. And Bomb Man, by the way, very simple boss. He puts down bombs on his side of the field, and then if left alone for too long, will kick them over to your side of the field for big explosions. By this point, shouldn't be that bad. That's the part of the internet we have to explore. We also have access to the rest of the internet, though, which is really interesting because it's also basically kind of the game's post-game area, despite the fact we haven't finished the game. In order to traverse the different areas of this optional undernet, in each section we have to undertake some optional challenge. For instance, one area we have to get through without fleeing a single battle. If we do in that area, we need to disconnect, come back, and start over. In other areas, we may have to win a certain number of chips in battle, or we may have to complete every battle above a certain busting rank, which isn't trivial to do because this is also where many of the game's most dangerous enemies hang out. But that also makes it some of the most rewarding. You can get some of the best chips in the game down here, you can refight some of the bosses to get really strong navy chips. There are sort of like pseudo treasure chests scattered around, including randomly respawning ones that have random treasures, and these mystery datas in the deepest parts of the undernet can have chips that you literally can't get any other way that are some of the best attacks in the game. When we come here in the post-game, if we've met various conditions, there's actually entirely optional boss fights down here, with Shadow Man, Pharaoh Man, and a certain important returning face from the classic series, 
which all three of the optional bosses in this game actually also show up as optional bosses in the next game, and I'll talk about it there because the post-game content is more interesting and I'm not going to go for 100% in this title. I'm going to drive myself nuts with Battle Network going for 100% in many of the later titles, so we'll save that for that. Anyway, whether or not we go for this optional stuff, we do defeat Bomb Man, and he gets the last laugh by blowing up the connection to World 3 space on the internet. But we did get some data, and in order to sort it out, we take it to Dad. Dad tries to tell us, like, well, thanks for this, I guess we'll let Chod handle it from here, and Len's like, excuse you, I've been saving the city over and over again, I think this is my thing. Dad's basically like, listen, World 3 are trying to start a war. Their plan, as we've learned about it, is to literally build a hacking rocket and fire it into space near military satellites so that the life virus will jump into those sat- God, even just describing this. So that the virus will jump into those satellites, infect them, and cause military weapons around the world to go crazy and blow everybody up. If we send you after this and you fail, that means the ensuing war is going to be on your shoulders, and I don't know if you're ready for that. Like, do you think you can handle that? We get a yes or no prompt, and if we say yes, then Dad's immediately like, yeah, okay, give me like a day. And we go to sleep, and we wake up the next day, and long story short, we find out that there's a hidden subway underneath the school that we use to get to the World 3 base. This area is kind of, in some spirit, a boss rush. Every door that we have to open in the base is a single area of basically all the previous World 3 Operetto stages. There isn't a boss fight in them. That will be a thing in later Battle Network games, where we'll fight many of the bosses again during the final stage. This time we just kind of rehash the stages instead. We also start to run into some of the hardest enemies in the game, including jerks with auras. Auras are a special type of shield that requires you to use either specific elements of chips, or chips that deal at least a certain amount of damage in order to destroy the aura before we can actually hurt the virus. These guys are enough of a pain in the ass, and they are aggressive enough and fast enough in all of this that even though I have been avoiding discussing specifics on the types of viruses you fight and stuff, they were worth noting. At the end of each of these stages, there will be some obstacle that Mega Man can't deal with, and then one of Land's friends is going to show up to help us out, whether it's, you know, Gutsman smashing rocks or Number Man showing up to decode an impossible passcode, and this kind of, hey, remember, Land has friends and they are theoretically capable and relevant to the plot and capable of assisting him, even though he's the one who has been doing everything the entire game, is going to be a standard of the Battle Network games. At the end of the final repeat segment, 
we have to fight the last of the World Tree operatives who is using Magic Man. This wizard dude stands in the back of the arena in a specific spot and has one attack, which is a slow-moving fireball. This would be an effortless boss fight if not for the fact that he regularly teleports in random viruses to fight us throughout the fight. You only have to defeat Magic Man, but the randomness of what viruses he brings in and kind of the interaction of their attacks with his simple one can get a little bit nasty if you're not on top of keeping them under control. We also have to save right before this fight, because every Battle Network game has some point of no return, where you have to complete the last chunk of the game as kind of a gauntlet. After defeating him, well, we don't quite defeat him. Wily gives his operator a fragment of the life virus's power. Mega Man takes critical damage before Magic Man himself is blown up by a surprise appearance from Chad and Proto Man. Now, one thing that I didn't bring up earlier is that most navvies have backups. Yeah, it might revert their AI's memory a couple days or so, but you can restore the navvy. Mega Man doesn't have that, and that's why we get game overs. And this is where we start to find out why that is actually the case. If you're familiar with the Battle Network manga or the anime, you don't know about what's about to be revealed here, because it's only a thing in the games. See, Mega Man isn't quite a normal navvy. It's been hinted at a couple times throughout the game, from characters randomly asking you if you're a twin and you having the option to say yes, to the picture on Yuichiro's desk that weirdly had a family with two kids. Long story short, mom and dad actually did have twin sons. Unfortunately, one of them fell prey to a heart condition at an exceedingly young age and passed away. At the same time, however, dad had been developing a new type of navvy. He realized that he had a chance to immortalize his son as a Navi by basing the Navi's data around his dying son's DNA. Hub, by the way, is the name of the kid. You know, like, Lan and Hub, get it? It's networking jokes, haha. In this way, Hub was essentially reborn as Mega Man. And he's actually known this the entire time, but Yuichiro was like, hey, don't tell Lan about this until he's ready for it. But there was one important thing that Yuichiro discovered, which was that, for some reason, if he allowed Mega Man to exist with exactly Hub's DNA, because him and Lan were twin brothers, Hub's DNA was so close to Lan's that somehow it interfered with Lan in the real world, and anything that happened to one of them would happen to the other as well. This makes literally no sense. There is no real-world physics that enable this to make any sort of sense whatsoever, but that's that's what had happened. But now, as Mega Man is basically, like, critically injured and stuff, Chad has brought a patch, the Hub.Bat, which Dr. Hikari's like, hey, this'll fix Mega Man, he'll live, but it will also patch that difference in DNA. It'll probably turn Mega Man into a super navvy who could actually defeat the life virus and stuff. But also it means that if he starts getting hurt, it's going to hurt you too, Lan. And if he dies, it's probably going to kill you too. Obviously, Lan being the shonen protagonist that he is, is like, well, hell yeah, hook me up with that. So Mega Man gets revived, and now him and Lan are synced up, and we're going to go kick Dr. Wily's butt. And this is where we find out how the alternate universe of Battle Network came to exist. Dr. Wily gets mad at us for being a Hikari, and it turns out the original Dr. Hikari, not Yuichiro, not our dad, but our grandfather, Dr. Hikari, which, by the way, Hikari means light, so Dr. Light, for simplicity's sake. Dr. Wily and Dr. Light were rivals, scientifically. 
Dr. Wily wanted to build robots. Dr. Light wanted to go into networking and artificial intelligence and stuff. The country's funding had eyes on both of them as the country's geniuses, but could only fund one of them for whatever reason. And after Dr. Light's work won an international exposition, Dr. Wily got very, very jealous about it because his funding got completely cancelled. The literal turning point of this universe is that Dr. Light wasn't a roboticist, he was a programmer. Also, that this world's Dr. Light had a kid, so there's that too, but that's irrelevant. Anyway, Wiley's been jealous forever, and the thing is, is Dr. Light's work was so transformative it changed the face of the world, so Dr. Wiley's been stewing in his jealousy everywhere he looks, and that's why he wants to destroy the world, because Dr. Light made it the way it is, and Dr. Wiley will take that from him. He's about to launch the rocket with the life virus inside, so Len runs up and jacks into it, and we run down a straightforward path, and then we fight the life virus. Our last boss is a fairly straightforward threat that sits center stage. He has a very straightforward but dangerous pattern. He generates a 100 power aura that has no element attached to it while charging an attack. He drops the aura when he does his attack, which is a variety of large attacks, from lasers to huge swords to, like, meteors that fall on the field, and this does create a window of vulnerability, but afterwards he generates a new aura to protect himself while he prepares the next attack. And yes, you can just wait for him to drop the aura, you don't necessarily need to take it down with your own chips, which is important because not every chip is going to do 100 damage even at this point in the game, most of them actually won't. But it's still a little difficult, and it's made more difficult by the fact that he will regularly spawn smaller versions of himself in front of himself, and these smaller versions will pester you with other different elemental attacks that you've seen throughout the game, making it that much harder to dodge them and the main life virus's attacks, or like, getting in the way of your attacks against him. It's not that terrible, but he is the endgame boss. He does have 1000 HP, which is, I think, tied for the most of any boss in the game. He has that shield that will absorb some attacks, like he's... It's a really good thing he's stationary. Defeating the life virus shuts down the rocket and prevents it from firing. Wily's plans are foiled, of course, because the life virus was apparently a load-bearing virus. The entire lab starts to blow up. We get the hell out with our friends while Dr. Wily stands behind shouting World 3 forever, and then everything blows up. Then we pretty swiftly get our denouement as Lan and all of his friends are just hanging out back at home and his dad's actually home for once and him and his mom are acting lovey-dovey and Mega Man and Roll are like, boy, I sure wonder how long it's going to take Mile and Lan to like actually be honest about their feelings and hook up. Spoiler, it'll be a few games. And with Lan still being dense and everybody just kind of joking about it, even Chad acting like kind of friendly and impressed with us for once in his life, that's it. That's how the game ends. Roll the credits with a really good mix of the main theme. Oh my god, okay, so this is already one of the longest games that we've had. And we're not done, but first I'm going to summarize my thoughts on Battle Network. This is an incredibly unique game. 
Like, yeah, the story is, like, tropey and shown in this hell. The mechanical side of this game was genuinely crazy unique for its time. There had never been a game that plays like Battle Network before. And to be honest, even in the two decades since, even though this game was a phenomenon at its time, there are very few games out there which play like Mega Man. There's been a couple. Obviously, ROM hacking became a little bit of a thing, and there's been a couple fan games and stuff, but even with the gigantic indie boom, only in the last couple years have we started to see games which were inspired by Battle Network and keep its, like, grid-based but real-time movement formula and try to innovate upon it and capture some of that magic again. Some of which are really good, by the way, One Step From Eden, amazing game, go play it. But in spite of this uniqueness, in spite of how excited I've been to talk about the series, in spite of how much I love this series, I do have to say Battle Network 1 is a little bit rough. It is a touch clunky and unresponsive in combat, especially with how long you sometimes have to wait between chips. It's internet area, which you do have to travel through a few times in the game, and especially in post-game, is gigantic, but also absolutely sucks to navigate. It's so utterly featureless, it's so easy to get turned around or lost, and it's such a major location for the long-term playability of this game that that is a problem. And its multiplayer is kind of thwarted by the way that chip folders are done. God, I didn't even mention, there's multiplayer. You can literally play against another person's Mega Man if you want. The multiplayer in this game is just definitely on the weaker side, just between stacking a folder with three chips and ten copies, making it really easy to just plow through things, and a lack of certain customization features that future games will have. And that's like... Kind of the thing is, I know what the rest of this series has to bring to the table. When we cover Battle Network 2, most of my time with that game is going to be me going, hey, here's all these things that were improved and added and expanded from the first game that make the first game look bad in comparison. As creative as it is, and as to the point as it is, and as solid of a start as it is, and this game reviewed really well for its time, this game is kind of like Mega Man 1 in a lot of ways, one of which is that Mega Man 1 immediately felt dated the moment Mega Man 2 happened. The same is going to happen in the series. Even after Battle Network 2, back in the day, it was hard to go back to Mega Man Battle Network 1. But I will say one thing that Battle Network 1 has going for it that will become a problem in later games is that this game is to the point. It takes maybe like three hours to beat it. There's very little filler or extraneous content. It's just story beat to story beat to story beat. So even if it's a dated experience, it isn't a dated experience that forces a lot of extra time out of you assuming you don't go for 100%. But all these aged factors are why I have a confession to make. I didn't actually play Battle Network 1 for this episode. And before you think that I am trying to cheat my way out of playing every Mega Man game, it's because I played Rockman EXE Operate Shooting Star. Okay, so that sounds like it's a totally unrelated game, but Rockman EXE, as in .exe, as in executable file, is the Japanese name for the Battle Network series. And Operate Shooting Star was a 2009 Nintendo DS re-release of Mega Man Battle Network 1. And it is the last game 
released in the Battle Network series. As in, it is the most recent. The, the series has not had, at least as of the recording of this episode, a collection title that has all the Battle Network games or anything like that. Editor's note, this episode was recorded so long ago that that statement was true. There is, in fact, a Mega Man Battle Network Legacy collection coming out. That was announced uh, months ago now, by the way. And it's going to have online, which is really cool. Just saying, support that when it comes out. Anyway, back to the episode as it was originally recorded. Hopefully that will change someday. At this point, they've re-released most of the Mega Man games in collection. It should be next on the docket, unless they're going to do a Legends collection. Operate Shooting Star was one of the last Mega Man games released before kind of the great Mega Man crash that also cost us Mega Man Legends 3. And it is technically a port, but also an update to the game that also has some new features. For instance, it slightly rearranges the game's music. It does have some voice-acted clips using voices from the Japanese voice actors. This game was never released in English, by the way. This was a Japan-only release, so Japanese voices. It does have some redrawn sprite artwork. It did touch up a couple of the more painful parts of the game. The random encounter rate is notably lower, which is good. It was a little bit high in the original. Not terrible, but notable. It added some slight visual changes to the waterworks to make things a little bit more visible. It added indicators for where the invisible paths are in Elec Man's stage. They fade in and out, but you can see them now. And also it made the battery puzzle suck less by not having you have to go back to the NPC if you fail it too many times. It made chips drop a little bit more generously, and it buffed up many of the weaker chips in the game. Of course, it did also buff up the super boss at the end of the game to compensate some, so there was that. It also used more modern mechanics for the chips in some ways. The folder limits from Battle Network 2 were implemented, and also the star code from Battle Network 2, which this recording's gone on so long we will deal with it when we get to that game. It also allows you to escape with the L button. You don't need to use a chip. You can escape just like you would in every other game. Probably the biggest change to just the game as it was previously is there's also a map of areas on the second screen, because the DS is a system that uses two screens, and to take advantage of that second screen, they gave you a map, which, hallelujah. The internet still sucks, but it sucks navigating it less now. But the biggest feature change in Operate Shooting Star is that it is also a crossover with the Star Force series, which we'll cover this way in the future, but Mega Man Star Force is the timeline sequel to Battle Network. It is to Battle Network what the X series was to the classic Mega Man games. And with that comes a whole new scenario where the main character of Star Force, Geostellar, actually comes back to the past and ends up getting wrapped up in a bonus scenario that happens near the end of the game, where he has to rescue Harpnote, another character from the game, from the clutches of Clockman, who's shown up and yoinked her into the past and is messing with everything. The scenario kind of isn't that great to play through. It's a lot of go to this area, then leave, go to a different location, find a key, come back to that area, rinse and repeat. But we do get a couple fun new boss fights. One with Geostellar himself, who basically is kind of like fighting another Mega Man. He has many of the attacks that are very distinctive to Star Force, including like Lock-On and Omegasus's Big Slap and other things that I don't have time to get into explaining just yet. And after we defeat Geo, as part of the scenario, 
Geo agrees to have Lan operate him, even though that's technically not how he works, but they make it work. That is one of the big features of this game, is we can swap off to Star Force-style Mega Man. Instead of having the elemental armor system, which wasn't that great, you have the choice between classic Mega Man and Geo Stellar after this point, and Geo brings the features of Star Force's combat system with him. He has a button that allows you to bring up a shield. He has a button that allows you to lock onto and teleport in front of enemies in order to use your various attacks, which allows him to use stuff like swords and fists and hammers on back row enemies when you're not normally supposed to be able to in this game. And that alone kind of makes him straight up an upgrade. It also changes some buster mechanics and stuff, but that really doesn't matter in comparison to just being able to sword everything in the game. At the end of the scenario, we also get a new boss who has, like, multiple forms we can fight and new navi chips. The idea behind Clockman is that he mostly has very straightforward attacks at first that are slow and easy to dodge, but every so often there's a giant winding clock in the background that, when it reaches like 3, 6, 9, or 12, will cause different special attacks that are much more difficult to dodge, many of which involving pulling characters literally out of the Star Force timeline to attack. Ultimately, all these little tweaks and changes to the original game and added content is a fun refresher for the original Battle Network, but it wasn't enough. Like I said, there's a ton of stuff that these games would innovate on. Extremely little of it was being backported, creating a game that still isn't as good as the second in the series, with the Star Force series falling out of favor at the time and all the internal stuff going on on Capcom and stuff. Operate Shooting Star might be the better way to experience Battle Network 1, especially with an English translation being available, but it didn't save the Battle Network series. Okay, that's my impressions of Battle Network. Let's wrap us up by enjoying some of the music from this game. As you've probably heard, the Battle Network series went for a very, very different sound. Partially, this was because the GBA had its own way of handling sound. It had a wide ability to handle a library of, like, sound samples. It could do more than the SNES could, but they weren't at as high of a fidelity. So they kind of leaned into that and went for something that has a mixture of retro, like, chiptune aesthetics with a little bit of modern instrumentation and kind of a sci-fi feel to it, these games have a very distinctive and unique sound to them. And one of the best demonstrations of this is actually the internet theme. As much as I hate the internet location, the internet's theme for this game is pretty nice. I love just the repeated like little electronic blips and beeps that sound like data passing you by, and just something about this track is really immersive into that feeling of stepping into and existing in cyberspace. Another track 
that I want to highlight is Elecman's stage, the power plant stage. Given the stage is kind of a timed stage and you are sort of trying to rush through it, it was very important that they managed to nail the high-octane feeling without, like, without going too hard on it. The tracks in this game only have, like, anywhere from a 30-second to, like, 50-second loop, and you don't want to do too much urgency in a really short loop. Some of the later games in the series tried it and it failed, but here it's done really well. Finally, I do want to highlight the final boss theme. Don't be surprised if like almost all the final boss themes make it into my favorite tracks in these games. They just really all do their job really well. And in this case, this is actually a remix for the most part of the boss theme, but there's like this distorted, almost, I don't know, screaming feeling under the distortion to one of the main instruments and part of the main melody that just adds this extra tension to it. I don't know. I just, the Life Viruses theme is a classic. Okay, dear lord, this recording has gone on almost two hours straight. This even beat Legends 2 in terms of how long it was, and I... God, this is going to be an editing nightmare. He said, having no idea how correct that phrase would have been. I don't even want to look at how long ago I recorded this episode. I just know it's been a really long time, and I'm very sorry. A real talk here for a minute. Depressing's a problem. Um, and as much love and support as I've gotten, there's still a part of my brain that hates hearing my own voice and just panics about it sometimes. But in the months that I haven't had the podcast going, I kept having people be like, hey, so is it ever coming back? I want to hear more. And that actually does mean a lot to me, genuinely. So this episode should be releasing on the second anniversary, and this is where I'm going to celebrate that, is this project began two years ago, and I'd like to resume it. I'm not going to make any absolute promises, and realistically what's probably going to happen is the schedule is going to become one episode a month. That is just way less pressure, that is way more time for me to be okay with you know, having days where I'm just not 
capable of editing without running into a massive wall because, you know, that's like four weeks. Anyway, that's enough self-pity. That is my intention. I can't promise it, but I'm going to try to get back to it. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen. I appear to be making an effort to be back. So if you liked what you heard and you want to catch more of it, waipf.podbean.com still chugging along and i'm still findable on your favorite podcast providers you can get in touch with the podcast by emailing what am i podcasting for at gmail.com i am technically still on twitter which as of this recording is still functional but could very well have exploded in the like three or four days since i finished this edit but if it's still around at what am i podcast for using the number four um yeah I think that's it. Thanks for listening. I've been Garlisle, and just remember, I accidentally deleted whatever bit was at the end of this episode. It was probably something about how maybe Dr. Light having kids actually pushed him away from feeling the need to build robotic kids, and so Dr. Light getting laid is why we have Battle Network instead of the classic series. You're welcome.